We are in Mark chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 28, reading through verse 34. And this is the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Today, I have the sweet joy of introducing to you somebody who doesn't quite need an introduction. He's a familiar face in our community, but perhaps this is the first time you're here with us online. Uh, See, Tom Clegg was the pastor who transitioned our community just a year ago into where we are now. He is a friend, somebody who has like sage level wisdom, and I would just commend him to you this day to listen intently to how the Spirit is speaking through him, to come with with open hands to receive how God might be moving our church, guiding our church through his wisdom. So if you would, let me me just offer a prayer for you and for Tom, and then we'll just receive God through him. Lord, we thank you for Tom Clegg. We thank you for his wisdom. We thank you for how you are working through him. And would you indeed add a blessing to your word through him this day? Amen. It's so good to be back together again, even if it is only virtually. You know, these times are going to pass. One day, it's not going to be like this. And for that, we're going to rejoice. But in the time being, we rejoice in the fact that we can gather together in this digital world and worship the Lord now through looking to his word. And we're in this study still (laughs) in the book of Mark and will be for quite some time because it is so rich in informing us what we need on this journey of following our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we'd be hard-pressed to find a more relevant passage than the one we have this morning in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. You know, we'd be very hard-pressed to find a more relevant passage to the world that you and I occupy right now. Never has there been a time in history in which the issues of what are right and wrong have been in more open and violent 
dispute. For centuries now, of course, people have argued about whether something was moral or immoral, lawful or illegal, right or wrong. But those arguments have always been inside some kind of shared cultural view of what was right and wrong. Uh, For instance, those debates would happen inside a Buddhist culture or a Hindu, Muslim, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, nationalist, or some kind of ideological culture. But what we have today is unique in human history because our society does not have a consensus view of what is right and wrong. There's no agreed upon ultimate moral code. Therefore, we have much more dispute today about what's right and wrong than in any previous society. And most likely, it's going to keep going that way for some time. All of that to say, Jesus Christ could be having this conversation that we find in Mark 12 today, just as he did 2,000 years ago. Now, this is a very relevant teaching, and uh, it's on the very nature of morality. And when you look at the passage, you'll see that it fits easily into three parts. In verse 28, there's a question. In 29 to 31, there's an answer, followed up with a dialogue in verses 32 to 34, which points to a journey that we are all traveling. So a question, an answer, and a journey. Let's take a look. The question. Now, this passage drops us like a really good movie right into the middle of a scene. And it's a wild sort of verbal bar fight. And it's rollicking all around the temple courts area. So far, the clash has been sharp and aggressive. And a group has sort of ganged up on Jesus. And they're throwing all kinds of accusations and questions at him. And out from the mob steps an individual who asks, which of the commandments is most important of all? Now, who is this guy who noticed that Jesus had answered them well? Remember, we're right in the middle of a scene. This guy, he's a scribe. And scribes, they, they weren't secretaries. They, they didn't copy, you know, take notes or copy scrolls. No, they were the professional class. These people were an integral part of the overall political, religious, legal system in that part of the world at that time. They were, scribes were were part theologian and part attorney. They were the legal scholars, as it were, of the day. Today, they'd be, man, they'd be commentators on CNN and NPR, and their columns would be in the New York Times, the Des Moines Register, and Salon, and Time Magazine, and their social media would just be massive, in followings, because their opinions mattered. And who then is this them that our scribe friend notices that Jesus has just answered? Well, they 
were the Sadducees. The Sadducees, uh, in the broadest of terms, the Sadducees were the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in an afterlife or the supernatural or really anything beyond the physical world, and they held to a, to a pretty loose interpretation of the law. In the previous passages, Jesus has brilliantly you know, refuted them, and that's the good answer that the scribe notices Jesus has given. Now, not all Pharisees were scribes, but nearly all scribes were Pharisees, so it's a fair bet that this man is a Pharisee. The Pharisees were really the, seen as the conservatives of that day. They took things very seriously and most literally, and they made a really big deal out of judging what was lawful and what was unlawful. Thus, they held to a super strict interpretation of the law. So you have both ends of the spectrum, right? The Sadducees who were pretty loose with the law and the Pharisees who were pretty well obsessively, you know, ordering their entire lives around it. Both the Sadducees and the Pharisees were in a struggle. They wanted the upper hand in determining what was right and wrong in their world. Because then, whoever could determine that, they would have the power to judge what was right and wrong and therefore determine who was in and who was out. Not just in religious issues, but in all legal, social, medical, sexual, civic, and economic matters. These people were the power brokers of their day. So this guy steps up with a question. And it's though it's not his of his, you know, individual origin, because no, this is the a blistering hot CNN headline worthy talking point in that day. Now this is because the Pharisees, of which he was most likely, they they had done endless studying and sifting and categorizing and debating and scrutinizing the law, the law of God. And they had come up with, get this, a very detailed list of 613 separate laws. You thought the Ten Commandments was rough? Just imagine 613. And imagine the, you know, mental space of somebody who would who would go to that exhaustive, uh, you know, research to determine all of that. So the questioner, who's part of that party, he's, he's, he's really seeking uh, clarity from Jesus. It's as if he's saying, uh, look, the reason we're debating, and, and we'd like your input on this, uh, is on the one hand, we know that if we're going to ever get God's love and blessing in our life, then we have to obey the law. But on the other hand, there are 613 laws. Who could keep 613 laws? We're doomed if that's what we have to do. So he cuts to the chase, and I like that about this guy. I've noticed that you're pretty sharp in these matters, uh, Jesus. So let me ask you, uh, what do you think are the minimum requirements for getting into heaven? Out of 613 laws, 
Some have just got to be more important than the others. Help us, you know, make the law just a bit more practical and a little bit more actionable, so to speak. Now, I know you're thinking, well, thank you, Tom. Uh, I really appreciate the background on this obscure first century Jewish rabbinical controversy. Just what on earth does that have to do with me here in Des Moines, Iowa in 2020? Well, the answer is everything. You see, what we have here is a first century Jewish question, but what it really is is that freshman philosophy 101 basic universal human question. What is right and what is wrong? And if we're honest with ourselves, that topic just power slides and veers right into all kinds of gray areas in our world. Am I right? Just like all of us, this guy is questioning Jesus, and he's wrestling with this. It's, on the one hand, we know there's a law, a divine law. We know there's such a thing as justice, but honestly, and more important, behaviorally, we really hate the law and all of its rules. But as we all know, if we give in to our hatred of rules, society descends into anarchy and brutality and chaos. And then on the other hand, submitting unquestioningly to the rules is horrific. That's where dictatorships and authoritarianism comes from. So we can't live with the rules and we can't live without the rules. So he's asking, are there just a couple of rules I could follow to find meaning, peace, and hope in life and go to heaven after I die? And that brings us to Jesus' answer. And in response, Jesus Christ tenderly and beautifully paints a picture of a life filled with a crystal clear sense of right and wrong. And what's astonishing is the way he starts when he's asked which commandment is the most important of all. Peek down to the last verse. It's easy to miss it, just like a train roaring by your house so often that you no longer pay attention to it. Because when he's done answering, it says, and after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. No one dared because they were scared. Because what Jesus did in his answer, which is coming, which was to subvert the very premise of the pompous people who were listening. Jesus cuts right through all of the historic garbage about right and wrong and completely redefines the content of the law and he totally redefines our motive for keeping the law. He redefines the content of the law, what it demands, and he redefines the motive of law-keeping, why we should obey it. He redefines the content by not choosing one of the Ten Commandments and elevating it as more important than the others, which is exactly what the crowd was expecting him to do. 
And this is important because if he had, he would have played right into the premise of the questioner, which was help us smooth it down, help us make it more progressive, help tell us which of the laws is really the most important. If he'd chosen a commandment or two, it'd have put him into their camps of being either liberal or conservative. But this isn't the way most of us today deal with the law, with the moral code that you and I follow, not just from the Bible, but in our everyday ethical system, isn't it? The way in which we deal with right and wrong in our lives, in our society, in our neighborhood, is to pick and choose which of the rules we really think is more important than the rest, and we make a list of optional ones, which thereby forces us into one of the camps of either being conservative or liberal. For example, if Jesus Christ had chosen the parent command, honor your parents, or the sex command, don't commit adultery, he would have been seen as a conservative because those things are really important. Or if he'd chosen don't steal or don't bear false witness, which is actually not just about lying. It's about distorting justice. If he'd gotten into generosity and distorting the justice system, and he says those things are most important, it's not sex and family and stuff like that, but these he would have been viewed and branded a liberal. And as he so often does, Jesus doesn't take either way, he takes a third way. He flips the script and he begins by reciting the single most familiar phrase in any Hebrew household of the day. Children would learn it as, as soon as they could talk. It would be said in the morning, said in the evening, said at the at table, said at the beginning and the end of any prayer from Deuteronomy 6.5. Shema o Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And to that, he then adds from Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And in so doing, he says that's what the law is all about. He doesn't say do these few things and forget the rest. In Matthew's account of the occurrence, he adds, on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. He doesn't say these commandments are more important than those commandments, nor does he say just love and forget the rest. No, what he's really saying, and listen to this, please, friends, until you understand that everything in the law is about love, you won't understand anything the law is about at all. And with that, he does something deeply subversive and highly revolutionary. First, he's saying that love defines what it means to live lawfully. The law is all about love even though at times it feels like it's in a negative 
form, Jesus is saying that every law is essentially about love and loving. Take the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Even though it sounds negative, the point of the commandment is to be an absolutely loving spouse. If you begin to understand what Jesus is saying here, you cannot fulfill the law by just not having extramarital sex. Instead, it's calling you to be an absolutely loving spouse. Thou shalt not steal. It's fulfilled not by not embezzling, but by being radically and happily generous to all of the people around you. Thou shalt not bear false witness. It's not just about not committing perjury. but It is about to live self-revealing lives with the people around you, not manipulating, not lying, spinning, but instead living truthful, vulnerable, and genuine lives before all people. What he's talking about here is about loving your spouse, loving your neighbor, and loving your community. And he's not just saying that love defines what it means to act lawfully. He's saying love is what every single law is about in the first place. See, it's far too easy to say, you know, what's important is not the rules, but just to live, you know, and do the loving thing. So let me ask you just one question, if that's the case. How do you know that you're, what you're doing is the most loving thing to do? And I ask you that because it's likely your definition is going to be shaped by your experience and therefore change over time. Let's face it. What you thought was loving at 16 years old, now that you're older and you look back, <laughs> was largely disastrous. And now you're 30, 40, 50. In my case, almost 60. Things have changed. See, we ourselves aren't an adequate foundation to determine what's right and what's in fact, every single time that you and I disobey God's law, every time we lie, steal, steal, cheat, commit adultery, every time we break any of God's laws, what we're really doing is saying, I know what's more loving than Almighty God does. So what Jesus is saying here is nothing short of revolutionary and that would not have been lost on his audience. He's saying, when I say all the, loyal, all the law boils down to love God and love others, I'm showing you why God gave us the law in the first place. Law defines what it means to act lawfully, and law defines what it means to live lovingly. So when the scribe asks him for help at whittling down the law to a more durable, doable, less crushing form, Jesus' answer 
is the most positive view of the law possible, and in the very same breath, the most threatening and subversive understanding of the law anyone in history of the world has ever given. And then just for good measure, (laughs) he emphasizes neighbor love, to act compassionately and justly to your neighbor, the building block of community. On top of that, he's declaring the only legitimate possible source for law-keeping, for doing what the law, all that God commands you to do to your fellow woman and fellow man is a heart that is hopelessly in love with Jesus Christ. To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. He's saying the only way to be free from thinking the law is anything other than an oppressive killing agent in your life is to keep the law because you have a passionate, loving relationship with God. And this completely destroys both the liberal and the conservative views of what's right and what's wrong. See, the religious approach says we obey in order to get something from God, to get love from God. We check the boxes so that we can be worthy of his love, and that bases every single act of obedience on either fear or pride. Look at what I did, God. I bet you love me now. I bet you won't be angry with me now, will you, huh? We're just, in that case, trying to earn God's love so that he doesn't send us to hell. Then along comes Jesus, and he says, look, here's a better way than either of those ways. You have to already know that God loves you and delight in God just for who he is. So that when you obey the law, even imperfectly, it's going to bring all kinds of health and wholeness into your life, into your loved ones, your neighborhood, the world around you. So I just imagine the people standing around are looking at him like, what planet are you from? Because this isn't liberalism and this isn't conservatism. No, it's, nor is it somewhere in the middle. This is not make up your own rules and it's not obey all of the rules. It's a whole new way of thinking and doing everything. They heard it. And they were petrified. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions because they got it. They understood. Do you? Hmm. Do I? And now the journey. So just how in the world can love become the basis of law keeping, the basis of one's internal sense of right and wrong. Just how in the world does this happen? How can this change happen in a human being? Our, our scribe, our, our legal scholar here in the story, he's just 
beginning to grasp it. And he says something that elicits from Jesus a surprisingly positive and tender response when he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The, the scribe says, remember, well said, teacher, you're right in saying that God is one and that there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, what he's saying here is just a little bit obscured by the translation more than all. Because the word he used here is the Greek word exceeds. There's a place in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's the very same word. He's saying, I suddenly see that what you said exceeds all the burnt sacrifices and offerings that could ever be made. And this is astounding coming from a Pharisee which the scribe most certainly was, because the Pharisees believed you try your hardest to live a good life and satisfy God, but when you do fall down, you go and you make a sacrifice at the temple and thereby ask for forgiveness. A sacrifice closes the gap. Be obedient 90, okay, 80% of the time. Do as good as you possibly can. You know you'll always fall short. But you can cover up that short shortfall with burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the scribe is beginning to realize that'll never work because you're telling me it now it's both the content and the motive of the law of which I am so far from. Look, I am now by your definition such a selfish, self-centered, and unloving person. All the burnt offerings and sacrifices in the world are never going to cover it. The scribe has to be thinking, if all the sacrifices and burnt offerings won't cover it, then I am totally lost. I am so, you know what? And to that, Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So just what does that mean? At least two things. One, the only way that you can possibly get out from being an indifferent, inferior or superior religious person and begin to live a transformed life is in a loving relationship with God, which is the only place from which all law-keeping can flow. It starts with admitting you're lost, just like the scribe just now realized. Jesus is saying the only way to perfect self-esteem is to lose all your self-esteem. The only way to get a love beyond anything you ever dared believe is to admit you're more hateful than you ever dared admit. The way is to start with repentance of turning around from the direction you were going in to his. And he's telling the, the scribe, you are. You're acknowledging that you can't possibly satisfy the law of God. You're taking your very first step. See, when, when Jesus says he's not far from the kingdom, he means first he's on the way and second, 
but not there yet. You know what's really crazy then in the story? He doesn't tell him what the next step is. And I wonder why not. I suppose it's because he's reminding him, friends, that grace is complicated. Because grace says, first, you have to see that you're a sinner, which the scribe is just beginning to grasp. But then next, grace says, you have to see that there's an ultimate offering, an ultimate sacrifice, which makes all those other burnt offerings and sacrifices inadequate. And the scribe doesn't know it, but he's looking right at him without realizing it. Not yet. And if you go back to chapter 11, you'll see that this scene is happening in the temple courts. The day after Jesus cleansed the temple, remember that? And they, they rush him and the verbal bar fight begins. What gives you the right to do this? What Jesus is saying is even though he doesn't say what the second step is explicitly, it is said implicitly. The second step is shown in the whole context of where the account occurs, where they're standing in the temple courts where the animals that were, had, were being sold for sacrifices and Jesus has cleared that whole place out and stands there with the sky and the crowd around. The fact that there will be only one who could ever be that ultimate sacrifice and that ultimate sacrifice makes all the other sacrifices and the temple itself obsolete, is standing right in front of you. It's on the cross where the scribe and everyone else is going to see that this law of love will be completely, utterly, and brilliantly fulfilled. When Jesus Christ was on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you realize what's happening in that moment? He is being sacrificed. Jesus, it, the perfect one, the perfect sacrifice is experiencing total rejection from the Father and being cast, quite literally, into hell on the cross. That's all found in that word forsaken, separated from God, forsaken. That's where hell is. Jesus is taking the penalty for all of our sin, not his, and bore all of our judgment on him. He took judgment for our sin straight to hell on the cross. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, he was loving God from hell, mind-blowing. He was loving God, not for anything he could possibly get. He was loving God purely and perfectly just for who God was. Not only is this the only time in history where someone loved God wholly for no benefit of their own and obeyed just for God's sake and not for their own sake, and at that very moment, Jesus himself is the ultimate picture 
of someone who loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength, and he loved his neighbor more than himself. If only the scribe knew he was literally talking to the one whose life and death says, I'm the one. If you come to me because I died for you, or in this case, will die for you, will accept you in spite of all of your lawless rebellion and selfish imperfections. Because the love relationship we have, sheerly by grace, because I fulfilled the law for you, you can start living a life imperfectly obeying the law because now you're wanting to obey the law. Not for what you'll get, but for whom the one you love is. Your Old Testament sacrifices and burnt offerings can't close the gap, but there's no gap that my death cannot close. First, owning the fact that I'm more wicked than I ever dared admit, and second, because of Jesus, I'm more loved than I ever and completely accepted than I ever ever dared dream. Jesus didn't tell the scribe the second step. Another reason is because we all come to Christ by way of a journey. And few journeys are just alike. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that you'll never completely understand grace. But you know that God is gracious Be careful you don't embrace God's grace and then live like you don't believe it. Don't say you believe God accepts you and yet live as if you're separated from him and still trying to earn his acceptance. And that's why we end up with the problems that we end up with in as believers, because we forget. Perhaps you're new to all this and maybe you're thinking, I'd like to come to him. Jesus says, come, follow, take a step. It's a journey. So keep coming. Even if you've only come a little step this week or today, say, well, that made sense. But what about all the other things in my life? Keep listening. You're not far. It's a journey. And when you're ready, look to your heavenly father and say, because of what Jesus did, Please accept me. In some ways, it's incredibly simple. In some ways, it's incredibly complicated. Think about it. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for this opportunity we've had this morning by way of the internet. But all the more so, I I thank you for the greatness of the wisdom of your son. But wow, oh wow, we thank you that even though he was an incredible teacher, we're so grateful that he didn't save us by his teaching. He saved us, but not by what he said, but by what he did, not teaching that we had to live up to, but by his death on the cross. 
And there he loved you with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. And he loved us as his neighbor, as perfectly for us in our place. Help us this morning to take into our hearts this passage, into our souls its truth, into our minds its meaning, and into our strength that we cannot save ourselves, but only you save through your son's sacrifice. For it's in his name, our Savior, our King, our Rock and Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Amen.